0: Turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians, one of the letters of the Apostle Paul. Our text this morning is in Galatians chapter 6. And so I invite you, if you would, to stand with me as we hear now from the Word of God. A Word that is living and powerful, that is sufficient and inerrant. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Brothers... And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this, your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to understand it better, that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Apostle Paul is going to describe for us what it means to be spiritual. There were men who, centuries ago, went to such extremes. There's an example of a man who built a 20-foot-plus pole in the middle of the desert and climbed up on the top of it to try and be spiritual. Others look for spirituality in ritual trying to make sure that just the perfect things are done at the perfect time and in the perfect way. And that would make one spiritual. And that finds its place even in places that name themselves as the Church of Jesus Christ. Still others expect to find spirituality in some sort of experience, some sort of power. And one becomes spiritual by identifying with Some sort of powerful, personal experience. But you see, the Apostle Paul is going to describe for us what it means to be spiritual. And the good news for you and for me today, Christian, is that we don't need to go to the desert. And that we don't need to do everything perfectly and in order in all the finest detail. And we don't need to wait for some sort of odd power to descend upon us in a physical manifestation. No, what Paul says is, to be spiritual is to be blessed by the Holy Spirit and to have the Holy Spirit work out your salvation in public. In a shared life with other believers. And so even as we sit here today, we have the opportunity to be exceedingly spiritual as we encourage one another. We're looking here now at the beginning of chapter 6, as Paul continues in a very practical vein with a series of commands. We're going to look at Paul's command to restoration, to restore others. And then we'll look at Paul's command to mutual help, to bearing one another's burdens. And then finally we'll look at Paul's command that we not compete with one another. So first, restoration then mutual help, and then finally, not competing with one another. Well, let us then look here at the beginning of chapter 6 of Galatians. Paul begins, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What a marvelous verse. Not necessarily because we have instruction in how to restore others, but it's comfort to our souls. Paul says, if anyone, yes, even you, Christian, yes, even me as your pastor, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But what does it mean here, being caught in any transgression? The word here, caught, is a bit odd, isn't it? We might say, if anyone commits... A transgression or a sin. If anyone is involved in sin, but no, Paul uses this word "caught," and he uses it, I think, for a good reason—not because it means that ah, someone has been found out that's been sneaking around. Because the language here is is one of being caught up in a net. One of being caught up in activity that one knows is wrong, ensnared, and perhaps even surprised by the depths that we can sink in our own sin. We're surprised by the difficulties that we get ourselves into. It certainly speaks to the deceitfulness of sin, doesn't it? We can be in moments in which we think we are most glorifying God, in which actually what we are doing is sinning against Him. Because we are putting ourselves ahead of others. Because we are taking God's law lightly. Because we are denying His gospel. That was certainly the case in Galatia. There were many who thought, well, if we just follow along with what the Judaizers are doing, we're glorifying God. But instead, they were caught up in sin. And I want you to notice something else here about sin that runs very counter to our modern notion of it. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught, you who are spiritual, restore him. You notice what the offender is not? He is not a pariah. Children, that's a fancy word for someone you avoid and make fun of and point the finger at. A leper. Someone you don't ever want to be around. When they come in the door, you speak in hushed whispers. And you snicker. That's not what someone who sins is to be. What a great comfort that is in the gospel. When we sin, we are not pariahs. But what we are doing is acting inconsistently with the fruit of the Spirit. You see, we are caught in a transgression. We are caught in a violation of God's law. And this word transgression works very well with the text that we looked at last week. Because... It is the word for transgression. It is not the word for sin. They're synonyms, but the word here for transgression has the connotation of walking and tripping, stumbling. And what did we just look at last week? What are we called to do as Christians, as those who show the fruit of the Spirit? We are called to march in line, to march in step, to walk along to the cadence of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul says is, if someone gets out of step, if someone stumbles, if someone is causing difficulty because they're not in line and in step with the Spirit, your job, you who are spiritual, is to restore him. Put him back in step. There's a clear link here to chapter 5 and verse 25. But the connotation of any transgression also carries with it that this is not an habitual action. We are not called to restore those who flout God's law and want nothing of repentance. They're not caught in a transgression. They are in serious rebellion against God. And it would be a shame if we acted as if this was not important. We do this each month when we have the Lord's Supper. One of the warnings of the table is, if you know that you are in sin... And you are resisting the Holy Spirit. And you are saying to God, I know this is sin, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. That is not being caught in a transgression. Notice also that Paul says it's any transgression. It's an isolated activity. It's something that we can all identify with. We are caught in a transgression. And it's deliberately vague, some sort of sin, any transgression. Paul does not want to be in the business of ranking sins. And if anything, he's drawing attention to the list that we looked at two weeks ago in the works of the flesh. Any transgression might be any transgression of (coughs) biting, devouring, of using the flesh, of being envious, and so on. That is the sort of thing that causes us to stumble. Well, what are we to do with someone who is caught in this sin? Paul tells us, and he tells us clearly, that we are to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, notice that Paul says, you who are spiritual. What Paul is not saying is, those of you that are perfect... He's not saying those of you that have it all together all the time. He's not even saying those of you that are of a higher rank of being Christian than others. He's just saying you who are spiritual, who have the Holy Spirit, who are united with Christ by faith, who express, show, and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. He might as well have said you who are patient, you who are kind, You who are good, you who are faithful, you who are gentle, you who are self-controlled. This is the sort of person who is to do the restoring. This is one who has the Holy Spirit. And the good news for the Galatians and the good news for us is that as we've looked at, Paul has spent chapters telling the Galatians that they all have the Spirit. They don't need to wait for some second experience. They are spiritual ones because they have the Holy Spirit. He says in chapter 3 and verse 2, let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by works or by faith? He says in verse 14 that we receive the promised Spirit through faith. He says again in chapter 4 and verse 6 that we have the Spirit of the Son in our hearts sent by God. He says finally in verse 29 that Jesus Christ was born according to the promise. And now we are born according to the Spirit. You see, all of us who are united by faith to Christ are spiritual. We are all potential restorers. That is our job. That is the command that Paul gives to us. Now, notice what he says. He says that we are to do this in a spirit of gentleness. And all we need to do is look at the very example of Paul here. He is the model restorer, is he not? By the Lord's grace, Paul does not pull any punches that need to be pulled. He presses home the point. He is not sparing at all. He tells the Galatians, I think someone's bewitched you. He says, I'm afraid I've labored in vain. And yet he keeps coming back as he does right here. Brothers, beloved, brothers and sisters, sons. Paul is a model of restoring. He is to restore in gentleness. This is the way in which we are to do it. What does it mean to restore the sinner? Well, the word here for restore carries with it several connotations. Often it's used in the Bible. Can you guess where in the Bible it might be used? Restoring conflict in a church. Yes, in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Where Paul calls upon them to be of one mind, to be united in mind. But the interesting thing here is it's also used outside of the Bible as a medical term. This is the word that is used when you set a broken bone. Or when you put a dislocated finger back in its socket. And I think that's exceedingly appropriate. Because think about it. If you've ever broken a bone, it needs to be set, doesn't it? There's no option. You must have it reset. How many here enjoy having a bone set? No one. It's painful. It must be done. But it is painful. You see, if we continue our analogy, we might see what bad treatment with sin in our midst might be. One thing might be to do to ignore it. You wouldn't think much of a doctor if you had a broken bone and he said, Ooh, I don't want to touch that. Ooh, that gives me the willies. What would you think of a pastor, of an elder, Of a Christian friend who looked upon your sin and said, Ooh, I don't want to touch that. Go ahead. That's not the way that we deal with sin. Well, we also don't deal with sin by diagnosing only, do we? We don't think much of a doctor that tells us that our bone is broken and tells us all the things about it and all the medical literature and then walks away, do we? So why would we think that a solution to sin in our midst might be to point out and to declaim against it and to show every Bible verse that's involved with it and then walk away from the person? That's as bad a treatment as the first. But there's yet another kind of bad treatment we might have. It would be the person with the broken bone who comes into the ER and the doctor says to him, you know, you never should have been playing on that swing set. Get out of here. What are you doing in this emergency room? You're wasting my time. I could be golfing. I could be helping others. Get out! And yet we do this in the church, do we not? We see sin in our midst and we declaim against it. And we make the one so isolated that there's no hope of restoration. Have you ever felt like that? When you have been caught in a trespass? Let it not be named among us. Let Christ's church be a place where we do not ignore sin. And we don't stop at diagnosing sin. And we don't declaim against the one who sins only. But that instead we would restore. We would, to keep using our analogy of walking in step with the Spirit and stumbling, we would pick each other up and set each other on the right path. We used that vivid picture last week, didn't we? of those who are training in basic training, and one falls, and they don't leave him there in the road to be trampled over by the rest of the troop. No. One or two or three others lean down and pick him up and march with him to their own difficulty and detriment. Because that's what you do when you're in a war together. That's what you do when you are a family. You don't leave people by the wayside. You pick them up, and you put them on the right path. And Paul says, you who are spiritual are to do this because you're the best suited for it. You see, those who are spiritual are those who have gentleness, don't they? It's the fruit of the Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness. And we are to restore in a spirit of gentleness. Do you remember what gentleness meant? Gentleness is not leniency. Restoring someone in a spirit of gentleness is not patting them on the head and saying, oh, there, there, everything will be fine. That's not gentleness. Gentleness is sensitivity. It is, if you remember our example, it is strength under control. And that is the way in which we are to restore others. With strength but under control and suited to the frame of the one we are restoring. Paul has some sharp words for us, Christ Church, because if we are not restoring each other as we are caught in sin, that is a sign of immaturity. You see, it is the mature Christian who has the Spirit and who is expressing the fruit of the Spirit and who is showing gentleness and taking up the command that God has given to him. That is the one who is mature. Not the one who has memorized the most Bible verses. Not the one who can recite the larger catechism. Not the one who has tithed the most. No, the one who is mature is the one who obeys God's commands that will involve learning Bible verses, that will involve learning the shorter and larger catechism concepts, that will involve tithing and giving. But we cannot forsake restoring one another. That is the mark of a mature believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a command. And notice what kind of a command it is. Paul doesn't say, well, if you have an opportunity and nobody better is around, and you think you can succeed, then maybe you should try and do something to help someone. He doesn't even say, if one comes to you seeking help, restore him. He says, you, you who are spiritual, you are to take the initiative. You who are not caught in sin are to be restorers. You are to be the ones who are to build up Isn't our Lord a pure model of that? He who never knew sin, who was never caught in a trespass, who was perfect, his entire ministry was involved, was marked by, was known as a restoration ministry. He took the initiative. He didn't wait for us in our trespasses, in our sins, in our muck, in our mire, in our dead bones to come to him and say, Lord, we think we could use some help down here. No, he left his throne, he left his comfort, and he came down, and he restored the people to himself. If we are to be Christians, little Christs, this is a task for us. It is a joyous task. Notice that Paul is focused not upon the sinners here, but upon the restorers he doesn't tell the sinners how to respond properly to the Restorer. He says, you are restoring, you need to be careful, you need to do it in a spirit of gentleness, and you need to keep watch lest you be tempted. Because you see, if we're not caught in a trespass, or we believe we're not caught in a trespass, that is a prime time for Satan to try and catch us with pride. And conceit. And do you know what Paul knows? He's been preaching it to the Galatians. I've been preaching it to you for weeks. Paul knows that pride and conceit can destroy a community and a church much faster than one isolated sin. That's the sort of thing that kills communities. It's often far more damaging to the church. Paul says something else to us. Not just as restorers, but as those who are to be restored. Paul is saying discipline is important. It's so important the Reformers made it one of the three marks of the true church. Right up with the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. Proper discipline. Why? Because if we are to have restoration... If we are to have community, and if we are to have ministry, we must be about restoring one another, forsaking sin, and having a process to do that. So what does that tell us as restorers? It tells us that there is a process of gentleness. You can find it in abbreviated form in Matthew 18. Simple principles. Start in private, not in public. Don't get offended. Bring witnesses to help you understand. Don't give up. Persevere. But it's also a description of what we need to think about as those who need to be restored as we all do at times. There is a clear application here for us. For you and for me. And it is this if someone comes up to you in a spirit of gentleness and tries to discipline you, to restore you, you have a command. Don't run. It is the first thing we desire to do, isn't it? What do we see in others, in ourselves, the minute we have difficulties in our marriage? We cease coming to church. We stop going to Bible study. We're having difficulties raising our children. We avoid Christian fellowship. We avoid the advice of others. You see, we don't want to be disciplined. We're more afraid of the bone being set than of the jagged edge sticking out of our skin. But you see, Paul calls upon us not just to restore, but to be restored. I plead with you. There will be occasions where someone will come up to you and seek to restore you in a spirit of gentleness, and you will be tempted to run. You must resist that temptation. You must see that the Spirit has given you brothers and sisters for your own good. Well, it's not just to restore We're not just to fix others when they're in difficulties. We're supposed to help others out in difficulties. For what does Paul say in verse 2? He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If we just even think about that, the word burden, it sounds heavy, doesn't it? You know, we think of a burden or a pack or a load, the Bible uses this. Roman soldiers used to carry burden packs when they marched. And one of the things that they were best known for was how much they could carry and how quickly they could march. It's one of the things that helped them conquer the known world. Do you know what these packs were often called? The anglicized version of it is impediments. They're things that slow us down, that drag us down. ...that tire us out. You see, we all have these things. None of us is without a burden. For all creation itself groans under sin. We all have lustful thoughts. We all have angry emotions without cause. We all have times when we think we're just a little bit better than others. We all have these burdens. So it shouldn't surprise us when we see others struggling under burdens... But you see, courage under a burden is not bearing it alone. It's not. Do you want sometimes to minister to others? Give other people the opportunity to obey this command. You see, if you're busy carrying your burden by yourself and never asking for any help, you're denying others the chance to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. You probably haven't thought about it that way, have you? You probably thought, I need to do my part. Everyone else has their own difficulties. No. Your part is to help others by letting them bear your burden with you. Because you see, this is God's activity. God is the burden bearer. Psalm 55, verse 22 says this. Peter brings the point home in 1 Peter He says, cast all your cares, not some, not the big ones, not the important ones, all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. And I'll let you in on a secret. Part of the way that God bears your burdens is by giving you each other. That's part of the way that He helps you with your burden. He gives you others to bear you up. Because you see, if we don't... We get discouraged. We're trying to carry too much. We can't do it. How can we bear one another's burdens? Very quickly, just as a reminder, you all probably know this already, we help bear others' burdens in prayer. By regularly praying for others. By letting others know they are prayed for. That is a burden that is lifted. We help others by sympathizing with them, by coming alongside them. The Bible calls this weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. This is the way we help others bear their burden. But there are also practical ways in which we do that. We take meals. We watch children. We provide rides. We provide financial assistance. These are good things. These are spiritual things. Ladies, when you make a casserole, you are doing the work of the Spirit. Gentlemen, when you help others around the house who are buried under difficulty, you are doing the work of the Spirit. This is the work of God in His people. Notice how emphatic Paul is. The very first word here, well, you can't see it quite in the English. It even comes before bear. The very first word is one another. He says, one another. Bear the burdens. This is the way in which we come together. And this is the way we fulfill the law of Christ. For the law of Christ is the moral law. And the sum of the law is, Paul tells us what? It is love. This is how we fulfill the law of Christ. By showing love to others in a tangible way. And Paul says, don't be deceived. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing... He deceives himself. There's another warning here against pride. Because we can become proud not just when we restore others, but when we help others. We think, well, we've got it all together. I'm glad I've never had difficulties in my marriage that I can bear others' burdens. glad I've never had any problems with my children. They're perfect. But you see, we need to be on alert against this. We need to be sentinels We need to watch out. Keep watch, Paul's word. The Greek word for that is very vivid. You know it from the English, scope. We need to scope out. We need to be attentive. This is the way in which we do this. We want to minimize self-deception. Because you see, if we become proud, there are one of two things that often happens. We're unwilling to bear others' burdens because it's beneath us. That's for someone else to do. I've got so many more important things to do. Can't you get someone who's not as busy as I am to help you? Or at least is not as busy with as important of things. Would our Lord Jesus Christ have ever said that? He who his entire life was of more important things. The other thing is we become unwilling to have help given to us because if we're proud and if our reputation rests upon the fact that we don't need others to bear our burdens, then what do we do? We say we don't need any help ever. We ignore the problem. We sink more and more under the weight. And then we act surprised when we can't get up, when we've fallen and we can't get up. We're to bear each other's burdens. And finally, Paul concludes here by saying that we are not to compete with one another. We're to restore one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to put down pride, and we are not to compete. He says, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. He says, Test yourself. Why would we test ourselves? Well, first of all, because that helps us to bear others' burdens, does it not? Who is better at helping than one who knows his own strengths and weaknesses? You will never hear me volunteer to tune up your car. Or to help build or design the expansion to your house. But you will hear me help you. Or volunteer to help. If you have a house to sell, I'd be happy to read and mark up the contract. I'd be happy to translate any Greek or Hebrew that you have laying around. I'd be happy in many other ways. I know my strengths and I know my weaknesses. You see, if we test ourselves, we become better at helping others. At helping them bear their burdens. Now, I want you to notice here that testing oneself, we need to think about this. Because there is a difference between introspection and examining oneself. You see, we want to examine ourselves. We want to know that we're on the right path. We want to know that we're forsaking sin. We want to test ourselves by God's word. But we don't want to immerse ourselves within ourselves. We don't want to come so to the point where we're looking inward that we can't see outward. We don't want to be morbid about our introspection. So we need to be careful. And you may say, how would I know? Well, perhaps that's a burden that you bear. Perhaps that's one I can help you with in discerning between the difference between good, healthy self-examination or introspection. There are many others here who can help you bear that burden. And then once you have become certain about how to understand that, then you can help others. This is how the body of Christ operates. And you see, if we are to examine ourselves, if we are to to test ourselves, we must do it by an external standard. How many of you have ever tried to come up with a test with a standard that moves? Tried to hit a moving target, right? You're going to cut a piece of wood, Do you want to make it so big? Or would you like to get out your saw and I'll say, I think the wood should be about this big. No. We must go to the standard of God's Word. We are to test ourselves so that our boasting is in ourselves and not in others. It is of no concern to me that I rank in a certain place compared to these ten people. Or those 15 people. I'm better in prayer than Joe and Bob and Billy. But I'm not quite up to it in scripture reading as John and Phil and Mark. No, that's silliness. We are to test ourselves by the standard of the word. Not by what we see around us. You see, that's the temptation when we're involved in restoration and in bearing others' burdens. It's to look around and see what we're doing. And if this is, if the Christian life is like a race, any of you that have ever run in a race, whether it's at high school track, college, or it's at a party, you know you don't run a race like this. You look for the finish line, and you go. You don't watch to see where people are around you. You never see that in the Olympics, because when they do, they usually start to lose ground, That's what Paul's saying. We're not to judge ourselves by others. It's an external standard. Something that we need to understand as believers. You are not accountable for someone else's gifts. You're not. You don't need to be worried about how someone else is using their gift in comparison to you. That's not your concern. Your concern is to test yourself and to develop your gifts and to develop the fruit of the Spirit in yourself such that as we look around, we are spurred on. We are not comparing. Because this is the only standard of comparison that is true. To compare ourselves to others is the height of foolishness. You all know well the famous story about this. It's about a man who is so concerned to compare himself to others, he's looking around, and his comment recorded for eternity is, Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like him. That this is what I do. If he doesn't. The Pharisee and the tax collector. You see, we don't want to be involved with comparing ourselves to other. We want our boast to be in the Lord and in what we are doing by the Lord's grace. You see, comparisons in general are bad. Because if I'm comparing myself to someone else, unless, perhaps, by God's providence, I am at exactly the same level that they are, either I'm not doing as well and I become discouraged, and I leave off from doing what I ought to be doing, or I'm more advanced and I become proud and I look down on others. Comparisons do not make for healthy churches. Paul concludes here by saying, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, if you're looking at this, or perhaps you're used to an older translation that has burden in both spots, you might think, Paul, um, friend, verse 2, you just told us to bear each other's burdens. Now you're telling us to bear our own burden. I know the Galatians have got you upset, but you shouldn't forget that quickly. No. There's a reason why it's translated here and in many of the newer translations differently. It's partly because there are different words, and I could bore you to tears with the Greek, and I'm not going to. But the context makes it clear, doesn't it? In the beginning, we're talking about burying one another's burdens, about restoration, about helping. Here, we're talking about testing ourselves You see, the load that is to be carried here is not a burden that weighs us down. It's our backpack, as it were. You see, it is light enough, and it is what we will have at Judgment Day. You cannot bear that load for your children, parents. You cannot. You can pray for them. You can witness to them. You can see that they are taught the word of God. But in the final analysis, you cannot stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, please, look at what I did and count it for them. You can't. Children, same goes for you. You can't bear the load for your parents or for your siblings. Husbands can't bear it for wives. Pastors can't bear it for his congregation. You can't. We all must go before the judgment seat of Christ. But you see, there's hope and promise here. Do you notice little things in the Bible? For each if they're able, might have to bury, might have to bear his own load. No. For each will future tense. Each will, brothers, each will bear his own load. It is light enough to be carried. This is more pastorly advice from Paul. Describing what it's like to be spiritual. And as you can see, if you hadn't thought about it before, being spiritual is often being messy. You can't live on a pole in the desert. You've got to be involved in restoring other people in carrying other people's burdens. It's sweaty work. It's hard work. Oh, but what good and gracious work it is. And we can't be standoffish. We've got to let others help us. We've got to let others restore us when we're caught. We've got to let others carry our burdens to assist us. That is real ministry. This is what Paul says. And all the time that we do this, we don't do it comparing. Look at him, he's carrying three packs. Oh no, he's got four. Oh, he's only got two. No. We're concerned about ourselves, and we're not comparing ourselves to others. This is the Christian life. This is life in a healthy church, and Paul is describing it for us. It's life in a church that understands what the gospel is about. May we, as we come to a greater understanding of the gospel, so too live out this spiritual, collective Christian life. Let us pray.